All right. Well, here's where we're going this morning. Um, as you know, we just finished uh, the book of John. We spent about a year and a half uh, looking at the book of John. What? Come on. Was it that bad? Oh my gosh. They're like, <laughs> that was awful. Anyway, so we've been in the book of John for a little over a year and a half. And um, we're going to take just a little bit of a, of a five-week five week little session or, or series to kind of look at something uh, a little bit differently than studying through a book. We're going to get back to um, studying through books of the Bible um, starting uh, in June. We're going to actually spend the summer. If you've never looked at the Minor Prophets before, we're going to look at the Minor Prophets. Um, it's a, just an incredibly uh, rich and just good study of just these groups of people that God used to, to warn Israel, to call Israel back to himself. And so we're going to be looking at that. But for the next five weeks, we're going to look at this thing called membership of a church. Now, automatically, when I say the word membership, some of you in your head either have a positive or a negative reaction to that. And then there's others of you that are like, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. And so over the next five weeks, what I want to do is, is I want to take a look at this idea of what does it look like to authentically partner with a church, to where I become a part of it. I don't just sit on the outside and watch others do it, but that I ingrain myself into a local church so that I can play the part that God's called me to play. Now, Cornerstone, one of the reasons, actually, I got brought on staff back in 2003, my initial role that I played at Cornerstone was as an intern to be able to get membership rolled out within this particular church. And so people would walk through this membership class that I put together, and then over time, the elders decided to move it more towards a thing where you, on a yearly basis, you renew your, your, your commitment and your partnership to this church, um, somewhere in the middle of that, um, we forgot to ask you to, to renew your commitment. And after a while, we just kind of dropped it. Now with it, one of my hearts is, and that's the thing I want you to catch is my heart in all of this. I really do believe after spending some time, and especially after the elders have spent some time just wrestling and thinking through this, it's something that we need to reinstitute here at Cornerstone. Now a lot of it revolved around this, and if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn there. If you don't have your Bibles, you can go to the back. I think there's Bibles back there. There's, I think there's Bibles. I, don't, I can't see because of the lights, but there's, I think, okay, I just got the thumbs up from Mike. But what I want you to do is, is I want you to just open your Bible up to 1 Peter 5. Let me kind of show you where the elders and I started to kind of realize this idea of membership and the need to, to reinstitute it. 1 Peter 5, it's one of the, if you don't, if you're new to the Bible, just go more towards the back or else look at the person next to you and go, dude, I don't know where 1 Peter is. I don't know where anything is. It's okay. That was all of us at one time. But 1 Peter 5 and look at verse 1. It says this. Peter, one of the apostles of Jesus says, so I exhort the elders and the idea is he's saying, among you, these, these men that are among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, you elders shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading glory. Now the key here is this. The question that we started to ask ourselves is who are the sheep amongst us? Like what are the ones we're responsible for? 
It's a logical question to ask because if you now go a few pages over, go with me to Hebrews 13. Here's why it's a logical question to ask. Just a few pages back the other way. Hebrews 13. There's a reward that the, that the shepherds get. There's a joy that the shepherds get in doing this. But in Hebrews 13, 17... He says, I want you to obey your leaders and submit to them. Something our culture, man, we, we stink at this, don't we? I ain't, I ain't obeying nobody. Submit, I'll give you one. You know, just this thing where it's like, what? But look why he says to do this. For those leaders are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, do you understand these guys? They are uniquely given the charge to watch over your souls, and in some way, these guys one day will give an account to God for you. It's one thing to say, I'm going to have to give an account to you. It's another thing to say, I'm going to have to give an account to God. All the elders of Cornerstone, we sit in the same place in that the people that are the sheep amongst us, we're going to have to give an account for. And so the question we've been asking ourselves, who are the sheep we're responsible for? Who are the ones that we're actually responsible for? Are the ones that just show up on a Sunday morning? Are they the, Who are they? And so out of it, what we've realized The ones that we're responsible for are those that desire to submit and obey. It goes all the way back to like a John 10 when he says, the sheep hear my voice. It's this idea in which literally the ones we're responsible for are these ones that desire also not only that, but some things that the elders are laid out to do. What does it mean to keep watch? It means that our job is to lead. If you go down to Hebrews 13, 7, look at this. You'll kind of see it. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and do what? Consider the outcome of their way of life, and now imitate their faith. There's this idea now in which these ones that you're following, you're to follow them and to imitate their faith. And so with it, one of the ways it means to keep watch is the way that we lead the congregation, the lives that we have. Not to be hypocrisy in any part of our lives, but instead to live in genuineness, to live in need of God. I mean, I'll confess to you, not only am I one who desperately needs Jesus every day because I ongoingly battle with sin, but the rest of the elders do too. The question is, do we battle it in our flesh or do we battle it with the way that the Bible calls us to via the Holy Spirit and via the gospel? See, we're no different than the rest of you, but he says in there now, imitate how they walk with Jesus. But he even has something also in there, the word of God, that these guys are to come and they're to minister the word. People always ask me, why do you preach the Bible verse by verse? Because I don't have the right to just put together something and tell you what to do. It says in there, I am to teach the whole counsel of God. That means in teaching the whole counsel of God, the problem with sometimes doing a series, even like the series I'm doing now, I can manipulate and bend it to the way that I want to to fit my own ends. And the the Bible is so clear. Be careful of that. Don't teach Todd what you want to teach. Teach what God wants the people to know. So not only the word of God, but we're to now protect from enemies. 
all throughout the New Testament, there's this reminder that there's false teachers out there, wolves in sheep's clothing that want to sneak into this church and draw you away from Jesus, draw you away from the pure gospel. And it says to keep watch. These are the job of the elders to make sure false teaching and doctrine doesn't come in here. And then also to teach you so that you can recognize false teaching and false doctrine. We're to be amongst the downtrodden and the sick talks about that in James 5, or any amongst you weak, or any amongst you sick, then do what it says. Call the elders. Call them. Let them minister to you. Let them pray for you. Let me tell you something. Our elders here at Cornerstone, our cars now know the way to multiple hospitals in this area. Man, lately we've been having several of the people we love, old, young, that have been spending a lot of time in the hospital, but you know what? It's not, a, it's not a drudgery, it's a joy. Are you kidding me? That's one of the most incredible moments we as elders have is to enter into some of the lowest moments of your lives. We're to judge on doctrinal matters, on matters between people, but we're also to equip, it says, the saints for the work of the service, for the building of the body. We're to equip you. And so the question is, is who are the people that say, yes, I want you to equip us. I want you to lead us. I want to be able to obey you. And I know that word seems so weird, especially in a culture like the United States. But that's what the Bible says. Look, I am going to be, I'm going to willingly agree with you of this need in the way that God set up his church. In Acts 20, it calls it a serious task, man. When you read Paul, he's praying with the guys in Ephesus and he's just saying, guys, You've seen how I've lived. Now you go live that way in front of people. But in Ephesians 4, where we're going to be for these next few weeks, go to the book of Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 4. Look at verse 11. Paul says this. He says there's this group of people, verse 11, that God gave to the church. He gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then this next group, the elders or the the shepherds and teachers, he said, he's also given these shepherds and teachers, verse 11, and then in verse 12. Why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why, Paul? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth and love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body to grow up so that it builds itself up in love. And God is looking at the elders and saying, that's your job. And in a gracious and loving way, because there's a reward to it, but also in that way going, do your job. And that's hard because in a church like this, everybody wants the elders to be different things. But at the end of the day, it's not what I think about an elder or what you think an elder is supposed to be. Ultimately, it's what God thinks an elder is supposed to be. But also, you don't have the right even to think what you want to be. The goal of it is, is, is that when we submit to Jesus Christ, we willingly then say, I will play the part that I need to play to advance the greatest message ever. But I love this. The context in which it happens is not these domineering elders that come up in front of you and tell you how it is. Instead, he says that it might build itself up in what? Love. 
We play these roles and we love each other and we love Jesus more than anything. And so we're willing to do whatever as elders to be able to come into your life, even at the lowest moment, even at these times where you're struggling in your marriage, whatever it is, we dive into lives. And again, have we done this perfectly? No, we need the gospel too. But that's the grace given to you. Is this congregation going to do it perfectly? No. Aren't you glad there's grace and love? But in that now, that's what he's saying. And that's why we're moving towards this thing called membership. Now, why the book of Ephesians? Why are we going to be in there? The reason I want to dive into Ephesians for the next few weeks has to do with this. Everything about the book of Ephesians is about who God is, who, who specifically is, who is Christ. And then also then, who are we as the church in light of him? He talks a lot about the church. He talks about the body. Now, I say that because in church circles right now, there's huge debates going on about whether we should be a small church or a big church, a house church or a building church. That misses the point. It's not about a small or a big or a house or a building. The church is not a thing or a place. The church is people. See, what that means is, is if I took all of you out to the parking lot, we would still be the church. If I took you up on top of the mountain over here, it might be cooler than right here, but we're still the church. And so what Paul's going to argue for here is our tendency to focus on all these wrong things. And not only that, but we tend to focus on what we're supposed to do before, before understanding who we are. See, the thing I want you to get as far as this membership thing, I don't want to tell you what to do initially. I don't want you to, I don't want to lay out the, what the scriptures call you to first. I want you to understand who you are and how God views you. See, this is key because for the first three chapters of Ephesians, it's just a constant telling of the people, do you get who you are? Do you understand who you are? And Paul lays it out over and over. He wanted us to understand that this idea of being involved as a member of a church, your value as a member of the church is not what you do, but who you are. Because every one of you in here, the, reason, the way that I look at you is through the, hopefully the eyes of Scripture. Your value is not your pocketbook. Your value is not your capacity to do things. Your value is that you are a blood-bought saint of Jesus Christ. That's who you are, and that's what Paul wants them to get. That's your value. You're valuable because God saw you as valuable. That's the love now that we're talking about. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to look in chapter 1, in verses 15 through 23. I'm going to do part of it this week in chapter 15 through, or verses 15 through 23, and then I'm going to do the next part of it next week. But today, all I want you to understand, before we even talk membership, I want you to understand who you are. So that's where we're going to be today. So go with me first, though. We're not going to be in verse 15. I want to start in verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of blessed is just this. He is content. He is satisfied. In fact, the way I always tell people, can you imagine as God, he has never had a bad day. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Like in all the days, it's like he'll, he'll never going to walk up and go, oh, I had a bad day. Even at the lowest moments, God's like, I'm still in control. I've never, he's never had a bad day. Oh, gosh, that's why I can't wait for heaven. Oh, man, can you imagine? How was your day? I didn't have a bad day, I'll tell you that. You know, it's just like, who has, look at this. 
who has blessed us, who has made us content, who has satisfied us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, with every spiritual contentment, with every spiritual satisfaction in the heavenly places, meaning from his very throne, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before time even began, he saw each and every one of us, and he said he chose us that we should be, look at this, happy. Right? Doesn't God just want you happy? If I had a dollar for every time somebody said, God just wants me happy. No, he doesn't. Look what he wants you. It's better than happy that we should be holy and blameless before him. When you stand in front of him one day, it ain't going to matter if you're happy. The question is, has he made you holy? Right? That's key. Then you'll be happy. Okay? Now, in love, verse 5 now, he predestined or he foreordained. This had nothing to do with you is what Paul is saying. You weren't smart enough, good enough. God foreordained us for adoption. He made us one of his own sons, it says, Through Jesus Christ, that's how he accomplished it, according to the purpose of his will. That was his plan from the very beginning, it says. To the praise of his glorious grace, meaning giving us what we don't deserve, with which he blessed us, made us content and satisfied in the beloved, in Jesus Christ. And in him we have redemption. The idea of redemption is he bought us out of the slave market of sin, made us as one of his very own kids. But how did he do it? Look at this next part. Through his blood. And God didn't shuck and jive and pretend. He said, no, I'm going to pay the price sufficiently. My son will die in your place. And then he says this, the forgiveness of all of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he, I love this word, lavished on us. That word is so cool. He just threw on us in all wisdom, in all insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, what he's been doing since the beginning, according to his purpose, because he's in control, which he set forth in Christ, something that happened way before time that he and the, and the son talked about in eternity, as a plan now for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, meaning that what God started, he's going to finish and he's in control. And in him, it says, we've been claimed as, the idea has been, or not, not we have obtained an inheritance. It's actually the better translation. In him, we have been claimed as God's inheritance. You ever sat down and thought sometime, the inheritance of God is us? You know how there's that side of you, you can't wait to get your inheritance if you were going to be able to get it? It's just this, now you don't want somebody to die. That sounds terrible. You know how you can't wait for somebody to die? That's not what I mean. The idea is, though, you know, you, it's this longing. I, I want what somebody has given to me. And the idea is, is that out of this inheritance is that Christ died for us so that we might be an inheritance, what God is going to inherit, meaning that's how much he values us. Having been predestined or foreordained according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, again, meaning he's in control, So that we, and that's talking about the people that first believed in Jesus way back in 33, 34 AD, who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, the promise of more to come. And then look at verses 13 and 14. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the, acquire the possession of it, to the praise of his glory. What does that mean? It means all the way in eternity past, God set something in motion that in particular in my life on March 26th, 1993, everything was in place and all of eternity is watching this God himself who had shows me in eternity past was waiting for the message to be brought to, G, to, to Todd Nicewanger. And it says, I heard the message and I believed. And it says in heaven then there is a joy inexpressible. And at that point, God reached down and he sealed me with his Holy Spirit and nothing will be able to grip me away from him. Why? It was a promise that what he started, he's going to finish in the life of Todd. That means God is in control of Todd's past his present, and he's got his future. And if you know Jesus Christ, there was that moment too when all of heaven waited there for you to go, I believe, and it was just like, yes! I mean, at the time, I didn't know. I just believed, but can you imagine if you could understand the angelic realm the moment you just go, Jesus, I believe in you. Oh, I mean, it's just been like, whoa. <laughs> hey, whoa. I mean, it would have been overwhelming to us. But the thing I love in verse 15 now, Paul is going to say this, and for this reason, he said, based upon everything I've just written in 3 through 14, specifically in 13 and 14, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I don't cease giving thanks for you. Paul's like, all of heaven is cheering, but guess what? I am cheering too because what he started, what God started in Ephesus, Paul's just like, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing faith. What we talked about last week, this idea, remember, of getting in the wheelbarrow. I've seen you trust Christ and continue to trust Christ. I've seen you love one another like you're supposed to. The call of John, this whole idea is, is that we would love one another as ourselves, just like Christ loved us. Paul's saying, I've seen a healthy church and I love it. I love it. And so he says, I haven't stopped thanking God for you. But he says also in there, it's not just he's thankful, and now you can almost tell it in him. I don't seek to give thanks, but now he's going to say, but I'm praying for you. See, the thing that he's going to do now that's so key is he's going to turn this corner. Is I am, he's saying, I am so thankful for you, but now I need to pray for you. Because see, the big problem that all of us face is all of those things are true. Our problem is not that they're true. Our problem is actually believing and getting who we really are. Our problem is understanding and waking up every morning and going, shut up, God foreordained me for the foundations of the world. When's the last time you thought that? You know, you wake up and you hear, ah, ah. Can you believe God chose me before the foundations of the world? <sighs> I'm one of his kids. But that's what Paul's saying. From the moment that you wake up in the morning until you go to bed, that should be on your mind. And so he says, I want you to get it. I want you to understand this. I want you to understand you don't need new, fresh blessing. You have been fully blessed. In fact, in 2 Peter 1.3, it says, we have everything that we need. And so what he's going to do now is this next part of it is he's going to pray a prayer for those that have everything. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ in here today, you have everything. 
And now he's going to pray for people that have everything. Specifically, he's not going to settle for them being okay. He desperately wants them to get this. And membership, if a church starts right here, it starts with getting who God is and who we are. And so that's what he's going to do. Now watch something with me in this text, okay? And I'm going to, this is how we're going to set it up. In verse 17, you see that word that at the very beginning? He's now going to pray, and that's going to be the first part of his prayer. And then look at verse 18, right in the middle of it. He says, that you may know. Okay, those are the two points he's going to lay out for us here. He's going to show us now what he's praying for them. Now, here's the first thing in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who he's already talked about, the one who is in this triune relationship with also the Spirit, the Father of glory, look at this, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. See, at the core of what he's praying for that you will get is that God has orchestrated all things that you might know him. That's what God wants of you. He wants you to know him. It was the point of the garden. It was when everybody fell. Everything has been designed by God. The reason Jesus Christ came and died is so that we might be as his people, that we might come. And the idea there is to know him, and not just in any way, but that little word there, it comes from this Greek word gnosko, except it's epigonosko, meaning that you might know him better and better and better and better. You might not just have an acquaintance with him, but literally that you might come to know this God in a greater way. That there might not just be an idea that this idea of kind of just a knowledge of him, but there would be a mutual knowledge and a mutual exchange that you would get into relationship with him is the idea. It comes out of this this Hebrew word yada that that oftentimes spoke of like, and specifically like Genesis 4.1, Adam knew his wife. In other words, he had intimacy with his wife. Now I'm not talking... Don't go sexual intimacy weird on me here. It just means that, man, that's how tight that God desires to know us. He wants to be intimately engaged with us. That we would know Him. And not only that, but if you go back into like Matthew 7, that is the key of actually those that possess eternal life. At the very end of it, it says there's people that will stand in front of Him in Matthew 7 And to some of them, he will look at them and say, we don't know each other. See, as a kid, I kind of grew up in the church. And in growing up in the church, everybody was telling me that I need to ask Jesus into my heart. And I don't even know where we get that term, asking Jesus into your heart. You're not going to find it anywhere in the Bible. But it has inside of this, and I could just tell my parents, they didn't want their son to go to hell. And I get that. Man, when I pray over my kids, I don't want my kids to spend an eternity apart from Jesus. But it's not using God as fire insurance. The mark of those that are truly His are those that know Him and He knows them. The push is not to get kids to say a prayer, but the understanding that we need to help people to get and to grasp around is that it is this idea of us knowing God. Because even in there, it's gonna, he's going to say at the very end of Matthew 7, you know, yeah, but we cast out demons in your name. We did these crazy things in your name. And he says to them, I don't know you. We don't know each other. And so with it now, that is the goal. It's not just that we would accept fire insurance, but this idea is, is that we would know him. 
But I love now, go with me to Galatians, just a few pages over. He's going to explain more of what this idea is to know him. Look at Galatians 4, verse 8. I love the pages turning. That's one of the best noises in the world. Gosh. Be loud when you do it. I love it. <laughs> Look at verse 8. Galatians 4, verse 8. It says this. Formerly it says, and here's the key here, when you did what? Not know God. At that point in not knowing God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature are not gods. In other words, you were enslaved to a demonic realm headed by Satan. But now that you have asked Jesus into your heart, said a prayer, come to what? Know God. I love how he frames that. Or look at this, rather to what? Be known by God. So at the end, that's what you want. Is that God knows you. In fact, he even then says, why would you go back to the silly elementary things, man? You don't need those things. You have God. I was talking with a guy earlier, and we were just talking about how in our past, some of the dumb things that we did, we were talking about the way we just love to play around in stupid mud puddles, and God is offering us the freaking ocean. You kidding me? The contrast between that is amazing. And that's what he's laying out here. Paul is saying this idea to know God is incredible. And I think sometimes what we have is, is we confuse the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. So in other words, I've always wanted to meet a president. I really have. I don't know why, but there's just something about it I'd love to meet a president. And I know things about President Barack Obama, don't I? I know that, number one, I know where he went to school. I know things like where he grew up. I know he likes basketball and golf a lot, which, by the way, I'm always thinking, man, dude, call me, call me. <laughs> I know his strengths and I know his weaknesses, but let's be straight. I don't know him. See, this is the contrast between it. Paul isn't saying that you know facts about God, about Jesus, but that you know him. That's what he's trying to get here now when he uses this term, this epigenosis term, is that it's a knowledge that just keeps growing and growing. And in fact, when it doesn't keep growing, bad things happen. And in fact, if you don't believe me, look at marriages. In my own marriage, one of the things that's happened throughout time, I'm one of those guys that just goes, 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 goes a million miles an hour, and then all of a sudden I turn around and I see my wife and my kids like, <gasps> you know, they just have that look. And so every once in a while I've really, <laughs> I've really grown. And so we were coming back up over the hill on the 118, and I, I said to my wife, I go, how, do you, how are we doing, honey? She goes, oh, all right. <laughs> just so you know, if you're young and in marriage, that's code for you're in trouble. So I said, I said well, well, what do you mean by all right? And she goes, uh, you know. I go, tell me. She goes, Todd, I love you. But I don't feel like I know you or like you right now. <laughs> it got quiet a little bit. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if I want to turn over that stone. <laughs> you know, it's just like, wow. 
But that is this thing that he's talking about is our relationship with God. We can't let it get there. Now, again, I'm not saying that you're going to lose your salvation if you don't keep knowing God, because the idea is the thing I love about God is that if we start to become in any type of distance away from him, the book of Hebrews says he loves us so much that he will discipline those he loves. He'll go, time for you to get back. Now, it'll be painful, but I love how God, that's how much he loves us and how much he wants us to know him. And so when he talks about it here, that's what he means by it, that we might know him better. But the other thing he delves delves into this is he tells us how to know him better. Look at verse 17. It says we need to grow in wisdom and we need to grow in revelation. The idea of growing in wisdom is, is that one aspect of it is that I have to spend time in the book that provides wisdom. By not spending time in this book, you risk, the not risk, you will begin to pull away from God. It is impossible to have a relationship with God outside of Scripture. But, sometimes we think that the Bible is like, I read it and a verse a day keeps the devil away. I don't just read it because it's a history text. I read it to know God. In fact, one of the dangers for me as a pastor is when I start to read this book for y'all. I don't read this book first for you. I read this book first for me. And not only that, then the Bible talks about, it's not just knowing God through factual information that we're pulling off these pages, but we're called, to lo- to, we're called to know God living out there. That's the other aspect of wisdom. Wisdom isn't just the knowledge, but the knowledge that then translates into how we live our lives. That's why when we set up this whole idea of grow, live, display, and mobilize is, is that we understand you need to grow in your understanding of God, but you need to get out there and live it. You can't just sit around in classes and go, oh, that's good. In other words, now, the only way I find out who God is is by taking this knowledge and going and living it. And so what Paul is saying is in here is that the way in which now this is going to happen is, first of all, through wisdom, and the second one is through revelation. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul is writing them, and he's telling them, listen to me, is that the true nature of who who God is, he's revealed to us, he says, by his spirit. But then he says something in verse 11 that's so key. He says, and no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Not only is it that I have to spend time in it, but I need the Holy Spirit to understand this. I have to have the Holy Spirit. He needs to illumine my understanding. He needs to help me to understand who God is. But the other part about it that I think is so key is that it's hard because we live in a world that's not about Christ, but about who? Me. Oh, do we love me, don't we? If you don't believe me, go to a gym and look at how guys look at themselves in the mirror. It's so funny, man. They'll always, Even if they're fat and tubby and out of shape, they suddenly walk by and it's like... Me. In fact, there's the philosophical word that's out there of know yourself. Man, the more I know myself, the more depressed I get. I'm trying to all know me, and I'm like, me stinks. This is Paul's point. Don't know me. Know Christ. Define your life not by who you are. You will get depressed and disappointed. Define your life by the God of the universe. 
A guy that I loved reading this week, a guy named E.W. Bollinger, he was a, a, a pastor and theologian in the 19th and 20th century. Just listen to what he said. Please listen to this. He said this, Instead of breathing this life-giving air of heaven, instead of just breathing in Christ, people shut their windows closed tight, and their doors are shut, and they're asphyxiated on their own selves, on their own exhalation. They are breathing over and over again their own breath, and from which all vitality is now gone. They need Christ. In other words, everybody shuts those windows off, and the idea is is that he's saying there is we just slowly kill ourselves because we shut the windows tight, and we just then sit there and breathe in our own selves, and our selves are dying, but Christ is renewing us. We need Christ in our lives. And so that then brings us to the next thing. This first aspect really does have to do this idea that, that Paul lays out that I think is so key, is that first of all, that we would have a better knowledge of Christ But now he's going to explain how do we get also this better knowledge of Christ. And he's going to lay it out in this idea of getting better spiritual vision. Look at verse 18. Having the eyes, he says, of your hearts enlightened. Now, anytime the Bible speaks of this concept of eye, it always talks about that being kind of in a way these windows into who we are. And so when he talks about the eyes of the heart, he means that we need to open the windows of our heart. We need to quit thinking about ourselves and asphyxiating ourselves. And we need to open, this idea is is that God needs to open the windows of our heart so that Christ might come in. The idea of the heart meaning the essence of who we are. It's the fulcrum of our life. It's the core of us. Not ourselves, but that part that operates us, that, that moves us forward. And so now what God says is, he says, in order for you to truly know Jesus, the eyes of your heart, you need to open yourself, that God needs to open yourself up to this. And then he's going to give us three things that he wants us to open ourselves up to. Here's the first one that he lays out. Look at verse 18. See that word, that? That you may know what, Paul? Here's the first one. What is the hope to which he has called you? In other words, he sent us all the way back to verses 3 through 14. Do you get who you are? Every Christian in here should spend time thinking about who you are in light of Christ. You should be able to wake up in the morning and just go, Oh my gosh, before the foundations of the world, God chose me. He renewed me. He saved me. He bought me out of sin. He made me one of his very own kids. He sealed me with his Holy Spirit as a promise of he still has a reward for me that I can never imagine. I need to, Paul is saying, spend time thinking about that and thinking about that. Why? Because if you don't, you'll buy into other lies. You'll buy into lies that have this idea that God isn't in control, that he doesn't know what he's doing. He's saying in here that hope is the opposite of what? Despair. Why is the world so despairing? Because they do not have Christ. It speaks about how God is in control. He's he's in control not only of the past and he's not only in control of the future, but the idea is is that God is in control right now. The The way that so helped my understanding of who God is that the moment I understood that everything that happens to me, God is still in control in spite of my sinfulness. Now that made it huge for me. That meant when my wife came in and her and I had a disagreement, I needed her in my life that day. 
when my kids are little punks, I used to think, oh man, it's so good you got a daddy like you do. No, God is saying, no, you need the little punks that you have for you. The people I work with. If you have to drive on a freeway, do you understand that God wants that for you to transform you? And some of you need transforming. Even into what I would say this, some of the most difficult things when we have to walk through even sickness and death, not only of ourselves, but of others. My aunt walked up to me and she asked me after my grandpa died, she goes, why do you suppose God allowed your grandpa, who's a man who walked with Jesus for so many years, to have such a slow, painful death? I didn't know how to answer for a second. All of a sudden, I walked away from her and it hit me. It wasn't for him, it was for us. And if you don't believe me that he will allow ones he loves to go through pain for others, then you don't understand Jesus. God orchestrates all things together. Everything that we have is saying is that the hope that we're talking about is even in our lowest moments, God is orchestrating what is good for us and for his glory. And Paul says, you need to think about that. You need to be, that needs to resonate in your heart from the scriptures. But it's not only that, it says in the very next one, when you look at it, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Or what, are the, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? See, this isn't speaking about the inheritance that I get. Actually, what it's speaking about here is us being the inheritance of God. See that? His inheritance is what it talks about. I don't know if you've ever realized it, but when God looks at you, he sees riches. A guy asked me the other day, he goes, do you believe in aliens? And I said, no. He said, Why? I said, because God did not promise to pour himself into anyone else other than us. We are the centerpiece of all of creation from the standpoint of us knowing him. He didn't give the opportunity to dogs or apes or plants or rocks. The one group that he said, I'm going to make you in my image to have a relationship was with us. And those that are his, that he's chosen to make his own, he constantly looks down. And the way that I think people don't get it is, is that he can't wait to come get us. I always tell people, man, when I'm gone for a long time from my kids, I can't wait for that moment the door opens and I hear, Daddy! Let me tell you something. God can't wait for the moment when all of us are called home and all of us scream, Daddy! He can't wait for that. So not only do I have to remember he's in control, but I also have to remember how he views us. He loves us. He's not annoyed with us. I think the other thing, people think God's like this. Are you kidding me? God's not afraid to spank us, but he loves us. He's not annoyed. But then here's the last thing that he lays out for us. Verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? He uses four different words for power to understand how much power God is bringing to bear because he loves us so much and cares about us so much and is in control so much. In fact, he uses the four words, and I don't normally just read Greek, but it's this idea, the first one, dunamis, he uses there. That In verse 19, it says that this idea of the greatness of his power. It means his ability. He has the capacity to do whatever he wants. He also uses another word, iskus, it's the capability. He uses kratos, the actual power to pull it off. He uses energeia, this idea, the function of it, that it actually comes to be. Now when you put all those four together, the way, best way I can explain it is, is the first time I ever got to drive a drag car. 
That drag strip was incredible. It's something I always wanted to do. And all of a sudden, a guy, when I was living in Wyoming, calls me up and he says, do you want to go down to Bandemere Speedway and drive a dragster? I said, when are we leaving? We got down there in the whole thought of my head. You know, you can just imagine your head. And I'm like sitting there, I can't wait to get there. And in the back of my head, that's dunamis. I knew that there was a car waiting that was going to be powerful. And then I get there, and have you ever seen a dragster, just how fast they look? It was just parked out there, and I'm walking around it. Yeah, I just look fast. That's the second aspect of power. The third aspect was when the guy, he said, get in. And I climbed in, and I put myself into that harness. And he said, turn the key. And I said, Hello. Because you're just sitting there. I'm like, oh. And then he even said, okay, we're, I'm going to need you to take it up to the starting line. I remember just sitting there. And I pulled up, and there's the tree up there. And I'm just like, no way. And I'm just sitting there waiting. And, you know, you know, so the guy's explaining to me what's going to happen, you know. And so I'm just sitting there. And another guy was racing me. And here comes the fourth aspect of power when I hit the gas. I hit the gas, man, and it's just one of those things where you just go, <laughs> right? See, there's this idea of God that we conceptualize and we know, oh my goodness, he's powerful. And then for a lot of us, we finally now kind of meet him and we look upon him and we go, oh, he's powerful. And then finally, we see God at work in other people's lives and we're like, oh, he's powerful. And then finally, he comes to bear on our life, and we realize, oh my goodness, we got way more than a dragster here. We got the king of the universe. See, the knowledge that he's talking about here is don't you dare put up with just seeing God from a distance. The goal is, is that now Paul is praying, God, would you please allow them to enter in by faith to be able to experience your power really, to dive into that and to experience what God can do. Don't settle for sitting back and watching. Don't settle for watching what happens in other people's lives. The idea is, God, would you open their eyes to this point where they go out and join you and see your power? I believe a lot of people never experience the power of God because they sit in pews and sit around and do nothing. All the while, God is going, do you want to see my power? Let's go. Come dive into the reality of what I'm doing. And Paul's saying, God, would you do that? And so when we talk about membership at Cornerstone, this is what we mean. A group of people that experience God, that know God, that see Him at work. If that's what you want, that's what we believe God wants to do inside of our church. But go with me to 2 Kings 6. Let me kind of show you something real quickly. This isn't going to just happen. Look at 2 Kings 6. Verse 15. Second Kings is way back in the Old Testament. Again, if you don't know where it's at, just look at somebody next to you and go. Now what's happened is, is that Elisha, a prophet, is experienced being surrounded by an army along with the other armies of, of that particular group, that tribe. And as they're surrounded by it, everybody's feeling hopeless. And suddenly a servant of Elisha, verse 15, it says, the servant of the man of God, or the servant of Elisha, 
It says, He rose early in the morning and went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. In other words, he looks out there and goes, we're, we're, we're sunk. He comes back to Elisha, and he says to him, Alas, we don't, can you imagine if we still said that to people? Alas, I need to go over to In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> Alas. <laughs> Alas, my master. What shall we do? And I love what Elisha says to him. Don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I love this. Please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. All of a sudden, can you imagine the guy's freaking out, and Elisha goes, just a second, I need to pray for you. He prays for him, and all of a sudden looks up and just sees these angelic hosts all around him, and he goes, all right, we're good, we're good. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But what I want you to understand is, and I think we need to pray about it this week for our church, God, open our eyes. See, because next week what I'm going to talk about is, is we're in a real battle. That's the point of Ephesians as well. I think we're just drifting through life and miss the fact that there is a cosmic battle going on here in which it talks about in Ephesians 6 that we make war. And I think sometimes we think the church is the love boat, you know, with Captain Steubing that comes on and says, Hi, welcome to Cornerstone Church. Our job is to make your life more comfortable. We've provided Vicky over here, you know, and we've got Gopher and we've got all these different people. You kidding me? We're not the love boat. We're a battleship. And so membership is in, in this church is not to make our lives more comfortable. Membership and being involved in this church is to understand we're in a battle and we need each other so badly. We not only need Jesus, we're too desperate for Jesus, but he created the church to need one another. And so what I would just ask you this week, would you pray that God would open our eyes? Just pray that he would give us a vision for what it is and what we're involved in. And we're going to get into next week what it is exactly then God has called us to do. That's where we're going to go that week, and then we're going to spend some time walking through then what does it mean to be involved in this, this, this particular group of people. Last thing is this. If anybody needs prayer, because you just look at it and go, I don't have that sight, we would love to pray for you. Maybe you've never been baptized before. We'd love to baptize you. Maybe you just need to know who Jesus is. We'd love to talk to you. But don't leave today without realizing this one thing. Two things. God is in control, and he's in control so that we might know him. Don't waste this week. Know the God of the universe. Amen? All right, God, would you please help us? Would you bring all your power to bear, Father, not so that we would get our little whims and wishes, but that we would, more than anything else, covet the reality that we can know the God of the universe. Open our eyes, Father. Give us spiritual wisdom and revelation. Allow us to see the hope to which we've been called. Allow us to see how much you love us and adore us and care about us as those that are your kids. And then, Father, just then open our eyes to the power that we have in you. Father, allow us to do things that we never imagined by faith, to go out and trust you and to start to see your power in the lives of all kinds of different things. God, do the miraculous. Not the whiz-bang-boom sometimes we think about, God, but the opening of our eyes so that we might see you and know you and long for you. 
God, help us to see what a treasure you are and what all these other things we pursue are nothing in comparison to that. Would you please do that miracle in your precious name? Amen.